This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. This time on Out of Water, we're bringing you excerpts from a message by Pastor Sam Kastensmit in his series, The Miracle Behind the Miracles. In this episode, Sam discusses our Lord's power to overthrow death. As a child, you probably learned the story about Daniel in the lion's den, but you may not have learned that it paints a picture of Jesus' death and resurrection. Then Sam will examine two lesser-known miracles involving God's power to raise the dead, both revealing God's tenderness toward heartbroken widows in the ancient world. Let's go now to the Ingram Center Theater at Rio Vista Community Church and Pastor Sam Kastensmith. When you come to a miracle in the Bible, what's the most important question you can ask? Why? When you read it, you want to know why is that there. If you get stuck in the how and the what, it just kind of falls apart and feels bizarre. Uh, But the why, when you begin to peel away at the why, you see in every case that God is singing his gospel over you. Miracles are also a promise of what's to come. They affirm our hope that God is going to ultimately heal and raise and redeem everything in his people. So there's no prayer request, no, no begging for healing, no longing to be with loved ones in Christ that God will ultimately not perform for you on that day. Think about that. What's that day going to look like when, when he makes all things new? When he gives you sight with capacities that you can't yet imagine. When he gives you hearing and abilities that are not clouded by the fall. Tensions and pains that we don't even realize we carry. Gone. And just to be an infinite presence of his love. And so that's something that's really exciting. And all of that is made possible by the miracle of the resurrection. And so today we're going to focus on resurrection miracles, starting with a famous one uh, that we learned about when we were in Sunday school. It's one of the first lessons. It's a major one that you get when you're doing Bible study. It's Daniel in the lion's den. You've heard it one way or another, but you've probably never heard it through the prism of the gospel with an aim toward resurrection. Uh, What's the story about? We tend to think that it's, just, it's God preserving a prophet in a really mighty way with a pretty incredible miracle, and all that's true. But when you hear the reason behind why God did it the way that he did it, what, what does it do? It takes the story of Daniel, which is this stunning miracle that we look at and we long that God would love us like that, that he would look at us and care for us like he cared for his prophet. But when you look at the details of this story and you ask the why questions, you realize God is caring for you in the same way that he cared for Daniel. To an even greater degree, this is your miracle. So the the story starts with the officials, kind of all the, the magicians, the satraps, everybody. They come to the king, King Darius, 
and they say, uh, we 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 got to get we got to get this guy Daniel. So they convince the king to pass an ordinance that says nobody's allowed to worship anybody but the king for the next thirty days. And so this is roughly five hundred and thirty years before the birth of Jesus. And it says, so therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. And when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. And he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. And I want... Ask this, I want to ask this question. Why is Daniel praying toward Jerusalem? What is Jerusalem when Daniel's praying toward it? Do you know this, the condition of Jerusalem at this point? It's in shambles. Daniel's in exile. He's living. He lived during and after the point when Nebuchadnezzar had gone into Jerusalem, torn it down, destroyed the temple, left it in utter ruins. And what faith it takes for Daniel. Cyrus had let the Jews or the the Israelites to go back to rebuild. And now Daniel, on a hope, three times is facing Jerusalem from hundreds of miles away, praying to God. What do you think he's praying? Raise it. Rebuild that temple. Restore your people. Come and dwell with us once again. Redeem us and relieve us from exile. Please, God, show up. And what else is really... So when you're reading this passage and you hear Daniel looking to Jerusalem, facing Jerusalem, prayed three times, what's, what's going through your mind? Who else prayed three times? Jesus. Remember the night that he's arrested, he's got his inner circle, James, John, and Peter, and they're with him. And what does he do? He goes and prays, and he comes back, and they're asleep. And then he goes and prays, and he comes back, and they're asleep. And he's like, can't you stay awake for one hour? And so he prays three times, looking toward Jerusalem, just like Daniel. says, then they answered... And said before the king, Daniel, who's one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction that you've signed, but makes his petition three times a day. And then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. He labored until sun went down to rescue him. Then these said, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, wouldn't that be a nice thing to have said about you? May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lord's, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace, spent the night fasting, no diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at the break of day, the king arose 
and went in haste to the den of lions. And he cried out in a tone of anguish. And the king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? And Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths. And they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. So in this story that we've heard so many times, here you find the man of God, the prophet of God, who is desperate for God to come and dwell with his people, to to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple. He's looking at Jerusalem, prays three times. He's arrested on trumped-up charges, right? He's taken before a king, and when all the officials bring the charges to the one who holds the authority of life and death, or who thinks he does anyway, what's the response? I don't want to do this. Right? Darius is looking at Daniel saying, I find no fault in this man. Who does that sound like? It's Pilate. I find no fault in this man. And yet... Daniel is delivered over to go into the den of lions. There's, there's a number of creatures that Satan is referred to in Scripture. Do you know what they are? He's a serpent, and he's a roaring lion prowling around the earth seeking whom he may devour, right? And so Daniel, in this, is thrown into the lion's den, just ready to be devoured by the enemy. And God's angel, who is, who is that? The angel of the Lord, right, comes and just shuts the mouths of the lion. And early in the morning, when the king races and has the stone rolled away, the man of God is untouched by death. Death has not conquered him. The whole, the whole of Scripture, even according to Jesus, is telling us That he is a God of resurrection. He holds power over death. And I want to stop for a moment in here because when we think of death, we think pulse stopped, brain waves done, body beginning to decay, lay us down into the ground. That's the death we think of. But how else does death touch you? I mean, if you really stop and think about it, death touches each and every one of us in a bunch of different ways every day. Hopes, our dreams begin to decay, our relationships begin to die. Everything, if sin is at mastery in our lives, everything is beginning to rot and wither away. And so the fact that we serve a God of resurrection isn't just comforting to know that someday I'm going to die and I have a God who's going to raise me from the dead. That is an entire new level of wonderful. But here and now, serving a God of resurrection means Great things for us. It means that when we humble ourselves, when we agree to die, that's the hard part, right? When we agree to die, he is the God of resurrection. When we humble ourselves and empty ourselves out and say, you know what, I'm going to take up my cross and my desires are no longer first place. My kingdom is no longer first place. My name is no longer first place. His is, and I'm willing to die to all of my stuff then by his spirit, he comes in us and raises us to new life. 
He brings new life into our marriages, into our jobs, into our parenting, into all of it. And then beyond that, if there is no resurrection, there's no meaning to anything we do. Anything. Our labors ultimately turn to dust. Our suffering is empty. Why go through it? It's not storing anything up. It's not producing anything. And in a hundred years, you'll be forgotten. And all of it will seem utterly meaningless, right? And so when Jesus destroys and defeats death and welcomes us in, the Bible says that we are in him, that we are raised in him, that we are hidden in him right now in the heavenly realms. We have victory right now. And therefore, We should walk around as the most triumphant people in the world. Death cannot touch us. Suffering only yields greater glory for us. What does the resurrection mean to you? How many of you have loved ones that you can't wait to see? I'm going to show you a video now that is underhanded, and it's a dirty trick. The miracle in it is not... God's immediate rescue. The miracle of this video is the hope that these dear Christian brother and sisters have for what God has already secured for them. Watch this. Dear Elliot, right now you are two months from being born. We just found out that you have trisomy 18, also called Edward syndrome. Doctors tell us that you won't likely make it to birth. Your mom and I are praying against that. We're praying for healing. We are praying for nothing less than a miracle. You are our first child, and the day of your birth couldn't come sooner. Dear Elliot, you were born today weighing in at six pounds. You are already a miracle to us. Your mom is doing well, and it looks like we'll be hanging out here at the hospital a little longer. Dear Elliot, today you turned 11 days old. We are so proud of you. Today we celebrated your 11th birthday. In fact, we do that every day at 4.59, the time you were born. Dear Elliot, we've been home for a week now, so that's why you don't see your nurses anymore. It's great to have you home. Today I think we'll pack up everything and take our first venture out for coffee. Dear Elliot, I don't know if you've noticed, but you're connected to some tubes. The doctors say we have to keep these in so you can get oxygen to breathe. You are also fed through a feeding tube. We feed you every three hours and it takes an hour and a half to do it. We've loved learning how to best take care of you. We love it. Lots of people email, call, and send cards on your behalf. You're well loved. It's 11 at night right now and my feeding shift has just begun. Mom is asleep and the best part of my day has begun. My shift ends around 4.45 a.m. when your mom takes over. She cherishes her mornings with her boy. Today you turn one month old. I didn't know if I'd ever get to say that. To top off the day, 20 friends showed up at the door for a true surprise birthday party for you. They sang, brought balloons, and a birthday cake. It was beautiful chaos. At 2 a.m. this morning, your feeding tube came out. We had been warned this may happen eventually. We quickly realized we did not have a stethoscope, which was necessary to replace the tube. Since our neighbor was a nurse, I went ahead and knocked on their door at 2.30 a.m. They found their stethoscope, and your mom went to it. 
After much wrestling, praying, and your tears, the tube was down, and you were able to feed. Just so you know, your mom is my hero. Dear Elliot, you now weigh 7 pounds 3 ounces. You're growing and your food has been bumped up because of your good appetite. You continue to find new ways to steal our hearts. Dear Elliot, today marks two months of your life. Your mom and I are so thankful we know you. We know your face, your noises. We know that bath time and massage are your favorite daily activity. You finally learned how to suck your thumb by yourself. Because of Trisomy 18, you were born with clenched fists, and being able to do this is actually quite difficult. Way to go, son. Dear Elliot, we celebrate your birthday every day with a picture. Lately, we've tried to get a bit more creative. Dear Elliot, I realize you can get frustrated with your tubes and your frequent congestion. Please know that your mom and I are doing everything we can to make you comfortable. Dear Elliot, well, you tipped the scales today at 8 pounds, 14 ounces. Quite an accomplishment. You also have managed to grow a pretty decent mullet. Dear Elliot, we all got to go to a reunion at the hospital. I've never seen your mom more happy. The joy she felt getting to show off her son can't be described with words. In fact, she compared it to the way a mother would feel when her son becomes president or wins a Heisman or develops a cure for cancer. The logic of medicine says you shouldn't be alive, but you are. You are such a fighter. Dear Elliot, you have now passed the three-month mark. You also got your first cordless pictures taken today. No feeding tube, oxygen, or stickers. This was no small accomplishment, but we got it done. Have I told you lately that we are so proud of you? Dear Elliot, today you went to be with Jesus. An underdeveloped lung, a heart with a hole in it, and DNA that placed faulty information into each and every cell of your body could not stop God from revealing himself through a child who never uttered a word. Not a pulpit, not a slick presentation, not a best-selling book, but a six-pound boy with trisomy 18. God found great pleasure to take a lowly thing in the eyes of the world and show truth. At your funeral, we released 99 balloons each balloon representing a day of your life. How beautiful it was to watch. How quickly they were gone. And so today, we celebrate. Elliot, you are well. And although we miss you more than we can express, we're only separated from you by our time left on earth. See you soon, son. Mom and Dad. It makes me love my Savior so much more that he could give that mom and dad hope for resurrection, hope that there are no goodbyes. We serve a God who looks at that and knows the pain of what it's like to have his guts ripped out at losing a son. He's not indifferent to this. Our God hates sin and death. So much. He hates the effects of the fall so much that he would go to a cross to defeat it. To bring comfort 
And what the resurrection does is if, if God had all the love in the world and he went to a cross and he made all these promises that he's going to make things right, and he went to a cross and he went into the tomb and he stayed there, all of those promises are utterly empty. If I wrote you a check for $4 billion, would you get excited? Why are you laughing? Yeah, it's going to bounce. If I write you a check for $4 billion, you'd be a fool to get excited. When Jesus rose from the dead, the promises, the promissory note that he has given to humanity, cleared. Every promise is good. He's the full faith and credit of God himself stands behind every promise that he has delivered to you. And we, as people of the resurrection, need to stand on those promises and walk around as though we are the wealthiest, freest people on the face of the planet. I got a phone call today that my mom fell and she broke, fractured her spine, and so she's in real pain and troubles and looking at all of this you can't help but start thinking about mortality and what's around the corner. And every time those thoughts come, it is such a comfort to me to really walk and remember what her hope is and to walk in that security and to just be so grateful that no matter what happens, if God calls her, she will go to one of the few people in the universe who loves her more than I do. And can take far greater care of her. So let's talk about this first miracle. The widow of Nain. Nain is a town that Jesus has never gone to before. The Bible in no other place ever mentions it. Jesus just decides that he's in Capernaum. Healing the centurion servant on this day. And then without the line that says soon afterward. Literally in the Greek that says the next day. And so he wakes up the next day, and he's going to travel 30 miles from Capernaum to Nain. And so it says, the next day he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. They've just witnessed this incredible miracle with the centurion servant and everything else. And it says, as he drew near to the gate of the town, which is where all the commerce and judgments and everything happened, behold, a man who had died was being carried out the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. What can you deduce from that? If a massive crowd is coming with this guy's funeral procession, what do you know about this guy? He's respected. Or she was. What do you also know about widows in the ancient world? They're in very, very bad shape. And so if you've lost your husband, and now she's lost her only son, she is in catastrophic condition, catastrophic. So they're being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. And you, you, we tend to read right through these stories, but I want you to stop and imagine, as far as we know, Jesus has never been in the city or the town, this tiny little village of Nain. 30 miles away from Capernaum. It's a hop, skip, and a jump away from Nazareth. Jesus shows up. He's got this big crowd following him. 
She has this big crowd along with her. They're coming out of the gate, and Jesus comes up to her and says, Do not weep. How do you think that was met? How would you respond if you're in the middle of a funeral procession and some guy, who probably they would have heard of by this point, comes up and says, Do not weep. And in this map, you'll notice it's a decent distance. And Nain shares a hill shares a mountain with another tiny little town that's called Shunem. And that's going to be important in a minute. Hang on to that. But the town Nain, it comes, they say in the, in the commentaries, Nain comes from the Hebrew word meaning pleasant, which also comes with Naomi, right? It's where that was so pleasant. Well, who's Naomi? Who knows who Naomi is in the scriptures? What's her story? She has lost her husband, And she's lost both of her sons, and she's absolutely in trouble, right? She has no male to take care of her in the ancient world. And what is the big, great, noble thing that Ruth does? Stunning. Where you go, I'll go. I will not let you sink. I'm not going to let you fall into destitution. I'm going to be there with you. And so, if you remember, when Naomi comes back to Bethlehem after losing her husband and her two sons... She comes back saying, don't call me Naomi anymore. Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara, which is literally bitter. God has made my life bitter. And God raises up Ruth and Boaz to redeem her and to care for her and to be there for her. And so I'm not sure whether that's intentional, but it's fascinating that Naomi, this widow who's losing sons, and this town's name are similar. And so it says, Then, so after he says, don't weep, says, then he came up and touched the beer. Not not like the Bud Light. It's like a bed, a cot, a stretcher. And the bearer stood still. You got to think, this is crazy. For a number of reasons, by the way. He just walks up, do not weep. And he puts his hand and stops the procession. He grabs the stretcher. You're thinking, there's a number of things wrong with that. First, if I'm at a relative's funeral or my, one of my children's funerals and some guy comes up and says, don't weep and grabs the coffin, I'm probably taking him down. <laughs> you know? Like this is socially super awkward, but here he is grabbing the bed on which this dead man is being carried. What else is a big faux pas about that in the ancient world? You do not touch the dead. Why? Because that makes you unclean. And if you're a holy man of God, you especially don't touch the bed. So he touches the bed, and the bearer stood still. Everybody's in shock, like this is, this is stunning. And he said, young man, I say to you, rise. That word that's used in resurrection language again, and so... I say to you, rise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Can you imagine that? Here's what I love about this. This is one of those miracles that you read through again and again, and you think, all right, there's not much there. This is what I love. In Jewish culture, if somebody died, you raced to get them buried before the end of the day. Still, to this day. So Jesus wakes up in Capernaum, and he's walking for 10 hours, and it just so happens 
that when this funeral procession is coming out of the gates, Jesus is coming into the gates. This is what I find so incredibly tender about this, and I want to hold on to this. What do you think this widow was doing 10 hours before they came out of the city gates? She was waking up to find her son dead. She's falling to pieces. She is praying and crying out to God. And what is Jesus doing? Ten hours away, he's saying, let's go. I've got to go to a town I've never stepped foot in. A town that has no seeming significance. But ten hours, Jesus is on the way. And all day, what is this woman doing? For sure, she's beside herself. God, God, why, why do you love me? Why would you condemn me to this? And all the while, she has no idea that the Lord has her in mind when he steps out and begins this 30-mile trek. How many, and that's, that's just a cool vision, how many of those prayers do we have going on in our life right now where we're thinking, why in the world would you do this to me, God? Why would you abandon me? I feel like your anointing has left me. I feel like you've left me all to myself. I don't feel you anymore. I feel dry. Where have you gone? Why would you do this to me? Not knowing that the Lord is on his way. Specifically for you. And so he touches the bed. He says, arise. She gets up and it says, this is the the response of the people. It's just, it's awesome. It says, fear seized them all. Fear seized them all and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited his people and the report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Why do you think they said a great prophet has risen among us? Like when you think of a prophet, do you think of someone raising the dead? They've done that in the scriptures. You think of somebody who's proclaiming a message, thus saith the Lord. But there are a couple of prophets who did raise the dead. Elisha is one of them. And so you remember the two towns that share the same hill? On the northern side is the city of Nain, and on the southern side is the city of Shunem, right? So one of those prophets who raised the dead is Elisha. He raises the Shunammite's son. So here's how this story goes. Elisha's got this ministry going on when Israel's an absolute train wreck. He's the follow-up of Elijah. And he's taken a double portion of Elijah's spirit, and he's carrying out his ministry as according to God. And there's this lady who shows him great compassion. Whenever he goes through this little town, she welcomes him and feeds him and takes care of him and sets up a, a bed for him in an upper room and says, you know, when you're around, this is yours. I want to take care of you. You're a man of God. And so so. Elisha loves this lady and says, you know what, like, how can I repay you? She says, oh man, for years I've been longing to have a son. And Elisha says, this time next year you'll have a son. A year later, she has a son. And the son grows up and one day the son is out in the fields with his father. And the son says, my head, 
my head. And when the father had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat up on her lap until noon. And then he died. And so this lady is, when she had first asked Elisha for this miracle, she says, I have no reason to fear, right? He said, no. And so now she's angry. Why would you give this to me? Why would you give this good gift to me that I have fallen in love with only to strip him away? And so listen to what she does. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. So she takes her dead son, carries him up to Elisha's room, lays him out on the bed, closes the door, and leaves. Then she called out to her husband and said, Send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, Why will you go to him today? It's neither a new moon or a Sabbath. She said, Everything's okay. Sounds like our marriage, right? What's wrong? Everything's fine. All is well. Are you kidding me? Her son is dead right above where she's talking to the husband. But I need a donkey. I need a servant. I need to go. I need to find Elisha. And so she gets on the donkey with the servant, and they travel from Shunem to Mount Carmel, where Elisha is, 20 miles. They get there, and she comes in, and they're yelling from a distance. Elisha's like, are you okay? Is your husband okay? Is your son okay? You know what she says? All is well. She gets near him, falls at his feet, grabs him by the feet, and falls apart. He sends his servant. He says, he's going to go back with you. I want you to take the staff and I want you to lay it across his forehead and come back and report to me what happens. They come back and you know what happens? Gehazi, his servant, says, he's dead. So now they've traveled 20 miles, 20 miles, 20 miles, and now Elisha says, I'm coming. So Elisha goes back walks up into the room. Now, let me ask you this question. Why do you think she put her son on Elisha's bed? So it says that when Elisha comes back into the room, he goes upstairs into the room, and you know what he does? Here's a prophet of God, and he gets over top of the Shunammite's son, and he gets eyeball to eyeball and lays over him and begins (laughs) these motions. And you know what happens? The Shunammite's son is raised. So here's the story of Elisha. Like he does the thing that you don't expect the prophet of God to do. He goes into the defiled bed. He jumps into what would have made him defiled. And so if you have that ear, right? You're you're right at Shunem. You're right at Nain, these two places right together. And here comes out this bed that they're carrying this corpse on. And what does Jesus do? He grabs it. He halts it. No, is basically what he's saying. He's doing exactly what Elisha did. He's, he's touching what should have made him defiled, but what happens instead? He's not defiled. His life surges and brings this Shunammite son to life. And so this miracle... This really pretty incredible miracle is telling you that Christ is greater than Elisha. He can't be defiled. 
and he looks after the widow. He has compassion, and he would, 10 hours ahead of time, start on the trek to meet the widow and her son and show himself mighty to all the people who are coming out of the town. Thanks, Sam. And thank you, friends, for listening to our podcast. If you liked what you heard, please give us a good rating. That will help others find the podcast also. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.